for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more than the views and expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity. Aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello. You sound very, very optimistic and positive today, Matt. How has your day, day been today? I'm doing drugs, Stuart. That's why I sound so happy. <laughs> wow. Okay. Big revelation. <laughs> this is the Curbsiders, the, curb the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto. Here with my co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. That's still me. Dr. Paul Williams. Hey, guys. And our hey. correspondent, returning correspondent, Dr. Cyrus Askin. I hope you throw a round of applause in there. <laughs> you just... I'm going to just retake that. And our returning... Yeah, right. I talked over him. And our returning correspondent, Dr. Cyrus Askin. Howdy, y'all. It's great to be back. Thank you, Cyrus. Thank you for coming back. Quiet. Cyrus Cyrus brought us one of our most popular episodes of all time, the, Disney, the Dizziness and Vertigo episode with Dr. Newman Toker, which is fantastic. If you haven't heard it, please check it out. And I think we should uh, go into some picks of the week. Do, 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 do. Okay. Wait, Stuart, are you giving a pick of the week? I think we're going to save my pick of the week. Okay. That's a good tease for it. Paul, <laughs> Paul, did you have a pick of the week? I'm not sure our audience can stand to wait to hear Stewart's. Yeah, I, I've, <laughs> I've got a pick of the week. So, and, and breaking with my usual completely non-medical pick of the week, I actually have one that's relevant to the show. I feel like we all have these articles that we kind of keep in our back pockets to give out. So, for me, it's it's early palliative care for non-small cell lung cancer. Um uh, it's the hyponatremia review article from New England Journal of Medicine. And then the other one I reach for a lot is this interpreting pulmonary function test article um, from the, the Cleveland Clinic Journal, um, the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine. So it's a 2003 article um, by Firuz Al-Ashkar, Rina Mera, and Peter Mazone. And it's just – it's a really nice, straightforward, algorithmic approach to how to interpret PFTs um, – even starting at sort of reviewing the patient demographics and making sure they're appropriate all the way through what to do with the DLCO. So it's, I, we didn't get too far down the rabbit hole on how to interpret PFTs, but if you feel like you could use a refresher or if you feel like you don't quite have the grasp that you, that you could on them, I think this is a really, really helpful article. And it's interpreting pulmonary function tests, recognize the pattern and the diagnosis will follow. Um, and this is from the 2003 uh, Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine. Cyrus, did you have a pick? Yeah, I do. So uh, also a medical kind of medically relevant one and also uh, a social media uh, pick as well. So at Nomage, K-N-O-W-M-E-D-G-E is a Twitter uh, account that I love. I follow it. Um, check it all the time. A buddy of mine, another physician in the area recommended it. So Nomage is a medical board review platform for doctors, residents, and physicians assistants as well. And so what's really cool about it is every week they have a theme. And so you'll get several questions kind of automatically uh, via Twitter with answers thereafter. And it's all kind of ABIM relevant material. And then on Sundays, they do kind of a, a quiz. So they'll do 10 questions followed by the answers. Um, and it's just a great way to kind of get uh, exposure to topics effortlessly. Um, and I think, you know, 
people get really busy, maybe don't have enough time to review stuff. This is just a great way to, to get it uh, directly to your phone. Highly recommend it uh, at Nomage on Twitter. All right. Excellent. That sounds like a good one. I, I will check that out. I, I feel like I, I haven't been doing enough questions lately. So let's, uh, let's talk about the show. <laughs> no, Watto, nothing. No $3 tennis ball you want to recommend? <laughs> <laughs> no, Paul, I do not want to recommend a $3 tennis ball. Uh, okay, you're, just checking it. What? Paul, Paul's still holding a grudge because I recommended a jump rope one time. Let's, <laughs> uh, let's just introduce the show. On this, on this show, we'll be talking about asthma. Our guest is Dr. Denitza Blagev, is a pulmonologist and intensivist who is currently serving as the director for the Schmidt Chest Clinic at Intermountain Medical Center in Murray, Utah. Dr. Blagev was an undergraduate student at Yale University and went to NYU for, the medical, for her medical degree. Thereafter, she completed her residency in internal medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. She served as a clinical fellow at Harvard Medical School and then furthered her training at the University of California, San Francisco, where she completed a fellowship in pulmonary and critical care medicine. Since then, she has balanced clinical teaching, administrative and research responsibilities as a faculty member at the Intermountain Medical Center. Of particular interest, Dr. Blagev has authored numerous blog articles dealing with physician wellness and women in medicine, describing herself as a, quote, girl driver, and has also appeared in several local news segments meant to inform and empower citizens regarding various topics in pulmonary medicine. It goes without saying that Dr. Blagev manages a very busy schedule, and of course, we are grateful and excited to have her on this episode of The Curbsiders talking about asthma. Excellent. Hey, Matt. Hey, Matt. Um, I'm almost afraid the, to respond. It's okay. It's okay, Matt. It's okay. Why did why did the stop uncontrolled the asthmatic stop? stop <laughs> why did the uncontrolled asthmatic stop by the zoo every day? I don't know. His pulmonologist told him to make sure he takes a llama daily. No. <laughs> tonight, our guest is Dr. Denitza Blagev, and we are excited to have her on the show tonight to talk about asthma. Hi, Denitza. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yes, this is this is a show that we've actually been planning. Cyrus, what is this, like two, three months, something like that? It's It's been a while. Months, maybe years. Hard for me to <laughs> say, really. Yeah. Well, we always start off asking our guests if you could give a one-liner kind of describing yourself to our audience. Um, so I'm a pulmonary critical care physician interested in COPD, asthma, and optimizing medicine. And you have a blog that uh, that I've I've taken a look at, and can you tell can you tell me a little bit about some of the topics you write about? One of the blog posts I read, which was uh, the title was very intriguing, was "Girl Driver." Can you tell people why you consider yourself a girl driver? Um, so, in addition to being a pulmonologist, I'm also a mother of three young boys, and there is nothing like raising young uh, children, in particular young boys, to make you realize. Um, kind of all the things that exist in the world that we don't say, but children internalize the rules. So uh, including, you know, I took one of my kids to the pediatrician and he had figured out the rule uh, of the pediatrician's office, which is that the doctors are all men and the nurses are all women. And this was despite <laughs> the fact <laughs> that, um, you know, I take in-house ICU call to the point that they asked me one day where I lived. So. <laughs> oh, dear. 
Um, so yeah, so then we were crossing the street and there was a bus driver who was a woman and my two-year-old was like, girl driver. And that was <laughs> unusual. Yeah. Well, hopefully you could change their mind on some of those uh, stereo- unfortunate stereotypes that, that, that still exist here. Tell them that you were, that you were teaching a bunch of male doctors uh, about <laughs> asthma uh, on the last night when they were asleep or whatever. So, <laughs> Paul, go ahead. Oh, I think maybe I'll even change things up and ask you um, how you sort of stay current with the with the current literature and with sort of how your field's evolving. What are the ways that you sort of keep yourself up to date on a daily basis? You know, I think it's a challenge because there's such an onslaught of all kinds of information coming at us all the time. Um, one of the things is that I... Um, I find it helpful if I have a particularly difficult patient to sort of try and in the context of that patient look stuff up, even if I think I remember it, um, because I find that it tends to stick. And then you really have a specific question you're looking at. Um, you know, I go to uh, conferences uh, and that helps um, and talking to people. But I think staying interested and in trying to read a little bit um, when I see patients helps. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I've got more of a pointed question. So as a woman in medicine, what is the best advice that you could give to a young girl who really is considering a career in medicine? So I think, um, you know, more than half the medical school graduates at this point are women, right? And so I think there are plenty of women in medicine, but within medicine, as I'm sure you've all experienced, it's really... Um, the ratio skews. So there is um, certain fields like, you know, orthopedic surgery, um, where it's a lot more male dominated, um, as opposed to OBGYN. And it doesn't always go by work hours or work life balance, you know, babies are born in the middle of the night, Mm -hmm. uh, knees are replaced during business hours. And so I think things are changing. But even within places that seem like they've changed, you know, so medicine broadly includes a ton of women, uh, but within specialties of medicine, certainly there are areas where there are very few women. And if you look at um, even within hospitals, there might be a ton of physicians, but still the people on you know top leadership are really men. And um, and so I think that's a challenge that continues to evolve. Um, I think one of the things that helped me is I played competitive tennis, and I think sports um, are a good way of sort of playing, doing something that depends on you and mm-hmm. learning how to deal with people. And, um, you know, sports can often be male dominated. And so, you know, it, I think learning how to play and win against men helps. So learn how to deal with adversity and competition is what I hear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then I think there's also, um, effects of, um, you know, if there's one woman in the room, sometimes, um, the attitude tends to be sort of like, well, I succeeded because I'm not like all these other women. Um, And so uh, sometimes I think seeking out female mentors can be a challenge. (laughs) Mm. So I think it it helps when there's more women in the room. I don't know if that really is helpful advice, (laughs) but I think persistence. Well, I'm not a young girl seeking medicine, so I'd have to ask my daughter. (laughs) Cyrus, how about how about you read her a case from Cashlack Memorial and we get into talking about asthma? You know, I would love nothing more than to do just that. Um, so let's open up with uh, this patient. 
Uh, so suppose a 26-year-old female presents to your clinic as a new patient with a chief complaint of shortness of breath. Upon further questioning, she does endorse some intermittent wheezing and non purulent coughing. Regarding her wheezing, she says that it comes and goes. She further elaborates that it's worse when she runs during cold mornings. Um, she also states that she had symptoms like this for a while, but up until now, it hasn't really limited her daily life. But now that she's having wheezing and difficulty breathing more often, she's, she's finally concerned. Um, kind of a brief history on this patient. She's got really nothing else going on, no medical or surgical history, doesn't take any meds, no alcohol, no tobacco, and no recreational drug use. At this point, you don't have any labs, no imaging, uh, and really no other testing has been done up until now. And so um, kind of like to open up in that context with uh, an initial question. And so as you're well aware, I think everyone's well aware, shortness of breath is a very common complaint in primary care. And many patients might present just like this, uh, this female would. Um, and so, you know, in broad strokes, my question is, do you have a framework you like to use when approaching patients like this? But then maybe more specifically, um, since we're talking about asthma, what key history and physical exam findings would help you key into the diagnosis of asthma? And specifically, what are you paying attention to? Uh, and what are you maybe ignoring or putting on the back burner? So those are all excellent questions, and I might have to um, break it up in parts <laughs> sure. if there's something <laughs> I, uh, I don't answer. But, you know, when I uh, when I see a clinic patient like this, I sort of try to think through how certain am I of the diagnosis? And the vignette that you've presented would be a pretty typical story. If I, someone who's young, who doesn't have um, other comorbidities that might lead me down the different road, doesn't have any warning flags. So, um, um, so typical symptoms, as you said, shortness of breath, wheezing. I look for it. Does it come and go? Uh, you know, I would like to know that she's normal in between episodes. Um, and that would make me less concerned. If somebody is always much more short of breath than they were a year ago, then that would lead me down a different shortness of breath pathway. And you pointed out non-purulent cough. I think that's the other thing. Having someone that has a chronic productive cough would lead me down a different pathway. So it's got to be mostly dry. Um, so in somebody who's healthy with kind of typical symptoms, you know, it sounds like a pretty good story for asthma. And then I ask questions that deal with what triggers um, their asthma, both because it focuses me on like, what am I going to talk about uh, with them in terms of trigger avoidance? And also depending on their answers, it sort of increases my uh, probability of asthma. So things like Cold air, dry air, and exercise, right, trigger asthma. But also um, when you get a cold, if the go cold goes away in a week, that's a pretty typical cold. If the cold goes away in a week and then you're coughing and wheezing for six to eight weeks after, that's your URI followed by an asthma exacerbation. And so she right. might say, oh, I've never had asthma before. And you say, okay, do you get a bronchitis every winter? And it's like, oh, yeah, every winter I get one cold and then I'm sick for the next three months. Um, other things, you know, in Salt Lake, we have air pollution and, and there's other places, but, you know, if there is air pollution or smoke or wood fire or smoke exposure, even from cooking, do those kinds of things trigger um, chemicals and detergents? So do they, you know, some people will be like, I hate perfumes and you hate perfumes because you get bronchospasm, but you're not <laughs> quite, you know, you don't have the words for that. Um, or, you know, when you walk down the detergent aisle in the grocery store, does that seem to bother you? Other people are really allergic. So um, do they have hay fever? Do they get sinus infections? Um, you know, sometimes they've had a polyp, you know, sinus polyps or uh, sinus surgery 
10 years ago when they sort of don't mention it because they don't think about it. Um, so I'll ask about uh, seasonal allergies, um, sinus surgeries. Do they take kind of over-the-counter allergy medicine, that kind of thing? And then the other thing that's a really, t- you know, and then pets are the other ones with, uh, you know, in terms of allergies. The other big thing I ask about with asthma is acid reflux. So um, it's really yeah. common. Um, there are studies looking at just giving everyone a PPI. You know, if someone has uncontrolled asthma, you give them a PPI, it does not improve their asthma. So <laughs> my attitude for PPIs is, you know, it doesn't help me if you just make the reflux non-acidic. I care about the reflux exacerbating right. the asthma. So if you're drinking a liter of soda per day, if you're snacking right at bedtime, as most of us do, that kind of stuff I might ask about. I want to I jump back. And if you just had to write a definition for asthma or if you had to explain what asthma is to someone uh, for like a Wikipedia article, what would that sound like? So uh, the tricky thing with asthma is that it's a clinical diagnosis, right? So there's no gold standard, but we think of it, um, it's generally defined as reversible obstruction, uh, meaning that in between exacerbations, you should have normal lung function. Um, You don't have to have, you know, reversibility on pulmonary function testing during that one episode, but reversible obstruction, meaning you go back to normal in between, uh, and it's characterized by airway inflammation. Um, and periods of exacerbation. So can I ask about um, the reversibility in the, of the obstruction, and actually specifically in terms of making the diagnosis? So this patient, say they sound fairly typical, your clinical suspicion is very high for asthma. How requisite are PFTs, especially since they tend to be normal, or can be normal, I guess I should say, in between exacerbations? How, how mandatory are they? How often do you, how early do you reach for those as a, as a diagnostic modality? So my guess is that the guidelines say everyone should have spirometry Um, in clinical practice. And that's true for a pulmonologist, right? But I think in primary care, where most primary care offices don't have a spirometer in their office, um, the reality is that if I'm seeing someone with asthma in my office and they are not currently in an asthma exacerbation, I'm getting PFTs to make sure that they're normal. If their PFTs are abnormal and they're telling me they feel fine, then I sort of, you know, can't trust that I can just fix their symptoms and things will go back to normal, um, or I might have to think more about them. But really, 99% of the time, their PFTs should be normal. I should only be getting obstruction on PFTs if they're in an exacerbation. And if I do get obstruction on the baseline PFTs, once I start treating them, I repeat the PFTs to make sure that they're now normal. If they were normal to start with, then I just go by symptoms. Is the methacholine challenge something that uh, pulmonologists are hesitant to do? Because I've I've had times where I order I order spirometry and I say that I'm looking for asthma and it doesn't get done. Is it a is it the same lab that should be able to do that? And should should they give it to everybody that's sent with a rule out asthma diagnosis? That's an excellent question. So. Um, Methacholine challenge. So I think you guys and, you know, most people have taken care of a lot of asthma, but you probably ordered very few methacholine challenges. And the reason for that is if you have someone where the pretest probability of asthma is really high, right? So if I'm 75% sure that this is asthma and I'm not getting a lot of red flags, a reasonable thing to do is treat this person for asthma, Right. Um, the therapy for asthma is safe, right? If I were 75% sure someone had lymphoma, I wouldn't give them chemotherapy, right? (laughs) (laughs) But 75% sure asthma, you can throw an inhaler at them. 
you know, if you're also thinking, you know, there's these other things I want to tie up, um, then, um, then, you know, you can do that, but, um, you would just treat them empirically. And if they get better then my post sort of the inhalers become your test, right? And then after the inhalers, asthma improves on inhalers, um, then my probability of asthma is even higher. If I get a methicoline challenge test and it's negative, if I'm really, if my pretest probability that it's asthma is high, then I'm going to be thinking like, well, I'm not going to listen to that methicoline <laughs> challenge. This really sounds like asthma. Mm-hmm. So for most people, I wouldn't get a methicoline challenge. The people I would get a methicoline challenge in is if it sort of sounds like it might be asthma, they've been diagnosed with quote unquote asthma for years. They take inhalers. They don't think the inhalers are doing anything for them. Their symptoms sound atypical. And I'm thinking like, well, maybe this is vocal cord dysfunction or something else. Um, But they're convinced, you know, but they've been on these inhalers or you're sort of trying to rule out asthma. Um, So that might be the person that I'll say, okay, I need to know for sure, you know, is this asthma and reflux? And that's why it's an unclear picture or is asthma totally wrong and they have, you know, focal cord dysfunction or something else, you know, bronchiectasis or something else. And I need to like stop the inhalers and not waste their time with that and focus on something else. And along those lines, in terms of imaging, like how, how early out the gate do you order the chest X-ray to make sure that you're not missing a mimic or, or some other kind of cardiology masquerading as asthma? So in the pulmonary clinic, I think in, you know, in a subspecialty referral clinic, most people will end up getting a baseline chest x-ray just to rule out. I think in a primary care clinic, if someone, you know, has a high functional capacity, if they're running and exercising and they're not short of breath, you give them inhalers and the symptoms resolve. Um, I think that's, you know, reasonable. But if anything is unusual, like if they have pure lens sputum, if they're not doing the kinds of activities you might expect for a 25-year-old, or if you're, you know, if you just want to get an x-ray, I, I think most people would recommend that. Right. So you're, you're not going to get like faulted uh, for, for ordering the x-ray if you just, things don't feel right and you just want to get it. Before we move away from the PFTs totally, can you tell us what is a what does a typical set of PFTs look like for asthma? Are you looking at the FEV1 to FEC ratio the way you do for patients with COPD? And how, how do we interpret them? Um, so the PFTs, and specifically, we would look at, let's say, spirometry and diffusion capacity. So diffusion capacity, you would not necessarily order in someone with asthma if you're um, but if you get full PFTs, the diffusing capacity in someone with asthma should be normal. If it is abnormal, that needs a workup. Really what you're looking for is spirometry and baseline spirometry should be normal, meaning your FEV1 over FVC ratio should be normal. So there's no obstruction. Your FEV1 and your FVC should be normal. If you have obstruction, so if the ratio is low, um, then you would want to do a bronchodilator. So you give them a uh, bronchodilator and repeat the spirometry and you look to see whether that improves. Um, again, if someone is, you know, having chronic obstructive asthma or really they're in an exacerbation or poorly controlled asthma, um, then they might not improve all the way to normal. So then I would sort of treat them and see if I can eventually get their PFTs back to normal. But just having the bronchodilator response or not having a bronchodilator response by itself doesn't help you distinguish COPD from asthma. I want to just make sure that I'm, I'm understanding correctly. 
essentially with with spirometry and asthma then you're you're exp- if if it is just t- your typical run of the mill asthma unless they're an exacerbation you shouldn't see obstruction and unless they're an exacerbation there shouldn't be much of a bronchodilator response um right okay so the spirometry so this should be normal to start yeah yeah and then the spirometry is more like if it looks really abnormal then then either they're in the middle of an exacerbation or some other diagnosis is what you should be looking for. Right. And if they're obstructed on that baseline spirometry, you treat them. And then I would definitely repeat it to make sure that it normalizes. Okay. Right. I, I just have, uh, along the same lines, I have a similar question. Um, how, how useful is getting peak expiratory flows in the clinic and following those clinically at follow-up visits? Is it something that we should be doing on a routine basis, especially if our patients aren't obtaining them on a routine basis at home and we don't know what the baseline is? Yeah, so I think the there are studies. So the peak flows used to be super popular, and they're nice because they give you an objective measure, um, but they're quite variable. And more recently, there were studies comparing managing asthma by symptoms versus by peak flows, and there was no difference. Um, So some patients can find it helpful where they track their own peak flow, and then it gives them a sense. Um, But if, you know, but if they don't, or they're not doing it, then I don't know if I would invest that much energy. Um, I was going to add one other thing, sorry about um, spirometry, and it leads into physical exam. Sometimes, especially in cough variant asthma, they will blow out normally. And so you'll have a normal flow volume curve, but that deep breath and deep exhalation will trigger a cough. So they'll breathe in, breathe out, the curve looks normal, and then it's cough, cough, cough after. And you can see that on physical exam too. When you're listening to them, you might hear the forced expiratory wheeze, but they might sound clear and then trigger a cough after the deep breath. With cough variant asthma, cough variant asthma, just to put it out there for the audience, is asthma without the shortness of breath. Cough is just the main prominent feature. So someone presents with a chronic cough and you sort of go down your cough algorithm, which we're going to do on another show. And you can diagnose that with a with a bronchoprovocation challenge or a methacholine challenge, right? That's right. And, and I will say... I think of dry cough, um, kind of you present in the case, and wheezing as interchangeable in terms of asthma symptoms. So if some, so they can have run-of-the-mill asthma, um, which also has cough as a feature, or they can have cough variant asthma where they're never wheezing, um, and it's the cough that's the main symptom. Mm-hmm. Well, let's. You mentioned physical exam. I think that's a good place to take this next. We we love talking physical exam on the show. If you could tell us what, how you approach the physical exam for someone with asthma, if there's anything else you do differently from, for other patient, than for other patients. Things that can go with asthma or that might affect asthma severity. I often will think, let's say, of sleep apnea. So, you know, I'll look at their BMI. I'll look at their mouth to see if what malampati class they are. So in terms of um, how likely they might be to have obstructive sleep apnea. And if they're obese, that might lead me to think that they probably um, are at high risk for acid reflux as a component. Um, you know, I look uh, in their nose kind of looking for polyps, and that can sometimes be um, helpful, uh, nasal polyps, uh, and then really listen to their lungs. So if they're having either expiratory wheeze or cough um, following deep inspiration, uh, then that's helpful. 
um, you know, kind of the typical things you want to know that they don't have clubbing, they don't have significant peripheral edema, or they don't have a huge heart murmur or something else. Uh, most of the others, I think, are sort of pertinent negatives. And is there any initial lab work that you do? Um, like, for instance, do you look for a complete blood count with a differential to look for eosinophilia, or do you kind of go right for the IgE? Or is there, is there anything that you do initially, or do you sort of let the, the symptoms in the background guide what lab work that you order? Um, I'll often get um, like a CBC with diff to look for significant peripheral eosinophilia. Um, and then... The serum allergen panel, which will for me will come with an IgE, is kind of an intermediate step if I'm not going to refer them to an allergist for skin testing. Like if they have a cat or a dog that they love and they really don't think they're allergic or, you know, if I really think allergies are where it's going to go, um, then I might get it. Or if they really have no idea what they're allergic to, but they have a runny nose and watery, itchy eyes and asthma, then I'll, you know, kind of do an allergen panel just to give them a direction um, for things to know. Um, I think a CBC with diff is reasonable. Um, if they really have significant peripheral eosinophilia, it would send you down different pathways. You know, do they have a vasculitis or chronic eosinophilic pneumonia? Um, I think you know, if it's the initial meeting and someone who's otherwise healthy, um, you may not have to do it. But, you know, if they're short of breath with exertion, I think checking for anemia as part of the CBC with diff is not unreasonable. Okay, so we've, we have our patient who, who has asthma, and I want to talk a little bit through where we're going to start with treatment for asthma and how you, when you first are prescribing treatment to somebody uh, with, with, with a new diagnosis of asthma, how do you counsel them how to use that? Because in my experience, whenever I counsel patients, even if they've had asthma for like 10 years, a lot of them are not using it correctly. Yeah, that is a huge issue um, in terms of inhaler use. And um you know, we have the odds stacked against us a little bit in that you'll prescribe them an inhaler, their insurance will change or their insurance will contract with someone else, or they'll go to the pharmacy and the inhaler you prescribed is $300 a month and the preferred one is something else. And then whatever time you've invested teaching them on the inhaler you handed them that day, <laughs> the pharmacist hands them something else. And, and so I think that's a huge challenge. Um, even in, you know, like a pulmonary clinic where we have respiratory therapists that'll come and do extra asthma and inhaler education, um, you know, the devices are constantly changing and people's coverage um, for those devices is constantly changing. Mm -hmm. um, I do think um, it also brings up the important point, like even if someone tells you they've been using something for a decade and they know exactly how to use it, go through it with them, have them show you how to use it. Um, and then for the inhaled steroids, really hammering the rinsing at your mouth, because when you give them an inhaled steroid and they get thrush, they will never take anything you give them again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I usually will try to remind them to do, to tie the inhaled steroid use with brushing their teeth. A lot of those are twice a day, um, you know, depending on the formulation, but I'll say, you know, do it before you brush your teeth in the morning, before you brush your teeth in the evening, you're already at a sink rinsing at your mouth. When you're telling them how to use, let's just say their their albuterol inhaler, what is the what are the instructions that you give to the patient there? So you know it has to some of the depending on the inhaler, but some of them have to be primed, um, and then generally the recommendation is with a spacer because that'll help. The reality is most people don't use a spacer. Um, but uh, so I think you know there's that, um, and then you'll have them 
take a breath in, then exhale, and then you want to have them kind of hold it with the spacer. And then as you're breathing in, spray, and then you want to count, um, you know, you want to hold your breath and count to 10 uh, and then breathe out. The other thing about albuterol inhalers that people misunderstand is that, you know, I'll have patients where they have a prescribed albuterol inhaler and they never use it because they didn't have to call 911. So when you say kind of your emergency inhaler, they're picturing respiratory distress. Mm-hmm. Um, so often I'll say like, no, if, you know, if the perfume makes you cough or, you know, uh, whatever the cooking smoke, those are other reasons that to use the albuterol inhaler. And, and is there a period of time? Because uh, I, I get this question a lot, you know, people that are active, that are runners, that sort of thing. Do you recommend a certain interval between what is likely a provocatory activity and when they should be taking their albuterol? You know, sometimes people say half an hour, but it is, um, first of all, albuterol should be active within a couple of minutes, right? Right, When you do the post-bronchodilator, you know, we do spirometry, you give them albuterol and you repeat spirometry. We're not waiting 30 minutes. So the peak of action might be 30 minutes, but it should be active within like a few minutes. And I think if somebody has to schedule um, you know, like remember to do the albuterol 30 minutes before they're going to do the activity. I just feel like it's too much. Yeah, sure. I just tell them, you know, if you think of it and you have a routine where you're taking it a half hour ahead of time, fine, but otherwise just take it before you do things that are going to trigger you. Great. Awesome. We do want to get into a little bit of the, the stepwise therapy and I guess everyone with asthma should have the short-acting uh, bronchodilator. Can you talk about how you what what would you, what would you go to as a first line for somebody who's having more frequent symptoms, and and how do you assess uh, how do you assess when you're going to move to the next step? What are, what questions are you asking, and what are you looking at? So I think one of the um, So we think of asthma as being treated, as you mentioned, in a stepwise fashion, Um, and everyone gets a short-acting beta agonist, but your first-line therapy for asthma is an inhaled steroid. Um, So I think there's a lot of confusion in terms of asthma and COPD. Once people are severe enough, the inhalers, by and large, overlap, but the only wrong answer in asthma is a long-acting beta agonist by itself, so that should never be done. And um, the only wrong answer in COPD is an inhaled steroid by itself. (laughs) Everything else you can kind of get away with. Um, But first-line therapy for asthma is an inhaled steroid. And and so when you're going to start treating someone, you always want to know, what am I trying to achieve here, right? So when you first see them, you want to know, are they having symptoms? And then what's their exacerbation history? And again, they might say, I've never been hospitalized or intubated for asthma, but I'll push them like in the winter, do you get a bronchitis? Do you, you know, sort of getting that exacerbation history. And so with the inhaler, I'm going to look for symptom improvement and reducing exacerbations. So first line would be inhaled steroid. If they're still having symptoms on that, then you can either double the, you know, go to a high dose inhaled steroid or add the long acting beta agonist or do the leukotriene receptor antagonist. So something like Montelukast. Those are especially um, effective for people that have sort of allergies or even kind of if you think about nasal polyps, um, kind of the, the triad of eosinophilia, nasal polyps, and asthma. Um, I think most people, because of the way the inhalers are packaged, would go inhaled steroid, maybe a high-dose inhaled steroid, and then uh, steroid beta, long-acting beta agonist. 
So yeah. I guess I'll I guess I'll get a little touchy feely here and say that from what from what I'm hearing, it sounds like the therapeutic relationship between either the pulmonologist or the primary care physician and the patient is really important because you're not necessarily just climbing a ladder. You're not following an algorithm per se. It sounds like a lot of what you do is really dictated by what the patient is telling you and 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 what you're able to tease out from their history. Is that pretty accurate? I think the most complicated diagnostic test we do as physicians is take a history. <laughs> so I think when Absolutely. you send someone to a specialist or when you're not sure what to do or when you're seeing someone complicated, you take a different history than the person before you. Um, but I think if you've teased out kind of the symptoms and the exacerbation frequency, you can go up the ladder. And that would be the recommendation. That being said, if I have somebody the same way that if you have someone with diabetes who has a hemoglobin A1C of 12 and you're not going to start metformin and expect to get down to six, or if I have someone with, you know, severe hypertension, I'm not going to start with hydrochlorothiazide and see what happens in six weeks. If I have someone with severe asthma who's having a lot of symptoms, I'm not going up the ladder, checking in with them every six weeks. And, you know, maybe six months later, they have some kind of control. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I might start them on multiple drugs to begin with, get their asthma or symptoms under control, and then work backwards and sort of say, well, what do I really need here and peel them back? Got but it. So you can always peel back once exactly. you get control. That's, exactly. that's not a strategy I'm very familiar with in asthma, but it makes perfect sense. So the guidelines in the textbook asthma, uh, asthma answer is you step up, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, our show is mostly about practical knowledge. So we're, we're, we're perfectly happy to hear you tell us the practical aspect of how things actually work. <laughs> but I, I feel like we forget about the de-escalation, which I think is also built in the guidelines too. You can actually step down and withdraw. So how, when do you think about that and how do you assess when to do that? So if they're having symptoms and I've treated them and their symptoms are under control... Then I sort of review with them, okay, what is it, you know, are there changes that they've made that have made things better or what other than the medicine um, is helping? So um, if I think of, okay, I have somebody and, you know, I don't know, they have mold in their basement and they had really severe asthma when they moved into that rental apartment and now they've moved out and their symptoms are a lot better and I have them in a combination therapy you know, if you've taken away the trigger, their symptoms might be a lot better on nothing the way they were the previous several decades. Um, and so once I have the symptoms under control and they're, you know, I have a period of time with no exacerbations, I try to get a sense of how often are they using their PRN albuterol more as a marker of symptoms. And if they're constantly having symptoms but never using the albuterol, it, you know, then it stops being a marker for symptoms. Um, or... Um, yeah, so symptoms, and then I need normal PFTs. If they tell me they're asymptomatic and they have chronic obstruction, um, then, you know, or if they tell me they're asymptomatic, but they never do any physical activity, then it's harder for me to know how much to rely on their symptoms. Mm -hmm. But, you know, people are not that adherent with medications uh, and the inhalers are expensive. So I'll say like, well, when you forget to take this inhaler, how does it feel? And for the people that are like, no, I know I'm missing it at 5 p.m., that might be a harder person to, to step back on from than the person who's like, oh, yeah, I haven't taken that in three weeks. I just didn't tell you about it. <laughs> I want to do I want to throw in a quick maybe a, maybe this is a myth buster. You tell me leave albuterol versus albuterol for patients oh, nice. who say that they're jittery or tachycardic. Where do you fall 
Where do you fall? Oh, Good question. <laughs> Everyone gets Zopinex. I know, right? I think at this stage, right, there's no convincing evidence that Zopinex or levalbuterol reduces any of those symptoms. That being said, you know, placebo effects are pretty powerful. Yeah. So if I have someone that's really convinced that that makes a huge difference in their lives, then you know, they can they can have their levalbuterol, but I would not generally start it. That's that's kind of where I'm at as well. I I do agree with you. Um, we we actually are going to be doing a show on placebo coming up, and that is that point will definitely be brought up in that episode. That uh, the placebo effect, regardless of what you're using, there's going to be some placebo effect. So, well said. <laughs> we we did. Thank you for confirming my bias. We did want to talk a little <laughs> bit about um uh, about asthma action plans and and how how practical is it for a primary care doctors to be creating those? And how, how would you create one if you were a primary care seeing a patient? What, what do they do? I love action plans because when you talk to patients with asthma, you know, especially if they have a history of exacerbations, they know that when they get a cold, they're going to have an exacerbation. And it's nice to give them a specific thing they can do that's not just waiting until they're sick enough to end up in the emergency room or in urgent care. Um, So if it's someone that has a history of asthma exacerbations where like once a year I get a cold and then I end up going to urgent care and they give me, you know, prednisone, then I'll generally have kind of those red, yellow, greens. And so here's your controller medications you should be on. And you're, you know, when you're in the yellow range, uh, maybe that would be the time to use more of your PRN albuterol. And, and if it's a cold or something that's sticking around, it's not just a, you know, kind of the normal waxing waning, um, then I would start the prednisone. Um, the caveats there, right, are if you're not improving on the prednisone, someone has to see you, right? Like, don't just keep taking prednisone figuring you're going to get better. If you're going to get better, you should get better within a couple of days. Like, it, it you know, or should be definitely on the right track. And I'll say things like, you know, because you might have pneumonia or something else. Someone has to see you at that point. That's not like a phone call. Can you get, get me a higher dose of prednisone or something else. Can you clarify what, what would make, make somebody in green, yellow, or red? Is it based on symptoms or are you going by peak flow? I imagine there might be multiple ways. I go by symptoms, um, but, but it is multiple ways. So there are, um, sort of the, um, and I think they're out there. I can send you a copy of one of ours, but, um, there are some that rely on peak flow. So if you have a patient that's measuring their peak flow and they know what a good peak flow for them is, then great. Um, for most of my patients, we do symptoms. So kind of, are they having increased cough and wheezing and shortness of breath? Are they needing their albuterol uh, more often than usual? That kind of thing. Um, the people where I hesitate to give them an action plan for asthma is if they have comorbidity. So if I have someone who has heart failure and asthma and aspirates, um, you know, like, Depends on their history and what I think has been happening, but that might be someone that, you know, needs to be assessed. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, if they've come into the ED the last year, once a year and gotten steroids and antibiotics and got better, then, you know, maybe we can give them uh, an action plan as well. I have another random kind of, I don't know that this is a myth buster, but it's something that I've been asked enough times that I wanted to ask you for your expertise. I have a bunch of patients that are like, I lived in this gross apartment. There was mold. Ever since then, I have this like gross cough. 
some of these patients were smoking too. So they're, but they're like, I'm bringing this stuff up. I think I have, I think I have some fungus growing in my lungs. Like when, when should we be as a primary care, like sending somebody to get a sputum sample and have that checked if ever? I think if you have someone with a chronic productive cough, they deserve a sputum culture. Okay. Um, so that I would have a very low threshold for doing. If it's someone that you're treating them with inhalers and they are, you know, uh, and they've moved out of that apartment. So you're, you're not thinking this is a continual allergic exposure uh, and they are still, you know, having a productive cough despite all that. And they're not back to the way they were before they moved into the apartment. Um, you know, then I would do a workup. So definitely PFTs. You want to make sure that, you know, uh, they don't have chronic obstruction for bronchiectasis. Definitely imaging with at least a chest x-ray and definitely um, CBC with diff and allergen panel. You can get, you know, things like ABPA or allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. So that'll be asthma, but then they have kind of the allergic component and the bronchiectasis. And so that would have a slightly different therapy in addition to the asthma therapy. Um, and then there's other mimickers like hypersensitivity pneumonitis, where they can have, you know, an interstitial lung disease related to that exposure um, that's beyond asthma. So if it's asthma, it should be responding to asthma therapy. And if it's not responding, there should be a clear explanation. So, um, you know, I still exacerbated uh, because, you know, the inhalers you gave me six months ago when you saw me were great. Then I felt better. I stopped taking them. And then last week I got sick again. I have an explanation for why right. you're exacerbating it. Right, right. Absolutely. But if you're taking what I'm prescribing you and you're having a productive cough, um, and like, you're still more short of breath than what I would expect, or you still have abnormal PFTs, um, then I would broaden the differential. So we kind of, uh, talked about this tangentially, but I'd like to get right to the heart of it. So when discussing asthma exacerbations, uh, you mentioned, you know, your outpatients, you may be able to intervene maybe with something like an oral prednisone, something like that to try to keep them out of the hospital. So kind of a two-part question. A, can you elaborate a little more on what you're doing to keep your outpatients outpatients? And then B, what are the things that are going to make you want to bring them into the hospital? And what are you going to do for them in the hospital that they just can't get at home? So for the outpatients, you know, you want to identify things that are typical triggers and clue them into the fact that they would be typical triggers. So maybe they didn't realize that a cold, um, you know, is a typical trigger or their dog or whatever exposure. You want to know that they're clear on the controller medications and you want to know that that they're kind of aware of their symptoms. I think sometimes people are in denial and they'll wait and wait and wait and then end up in the hospital. So I think um, telling them that one, they can use the albuterol when they're starting to get sick and using that as a marker for, Hey, if it's helping, if albuterol is helping, then it suggests that it's related, you know, your asthma is getting worse and then giving them some therapy at the time. So typical symptoms, typical triggers, uh, and then pretty low threshold for giving someone uncomplicated prednisone at home so that it can start it. And the big thing there is they've got to be getting better on prednisone. If they're not got getting it. better on prednisone, someone has to see them and figure out why not. Sure. If they are sick enough, you know, so one of my mentors said that the saddest case he ever heard of was a lawyer who wanted to sue the um uh, I don't know, the company that makes albuterol, one of the albuterols, because the last words he said to his daughter who died of asthma were, remember, don't take it more than every four hours. And oh, so, 
The Oof. thing I emphasize to people is you can take the albuterol as often as you need. If you are short of breath, you know, if you come to the ED and you can't breathe, we are giving you continuous albuterol. So take the albuterol. Yeah, absolutely. But if you are needing the albuterol every hour, then you are doing badly and someone needs to be watching you because you might, you know, tank. So go ahead and take your albuterol while someone calls 911. Um, Because in that situation, you know, what if you're not turning around, you might need to be intubated or, you know, get IV steroids um, and, you know, be evaluated for why is this such a severe asthma attack? Sure, sure. Can you get a little specific on the doses and the agents that you would be adding in when someone comes into the emergency department? Let's say we're the we're now the inpatient team going down to take the patient, or let we're the um, urgent care physician. What what should we be giving them when they cut when they present to the hospital? And then if we're going to admit them, what what agents would you continue in the hospital? So again, for asthma therapy, um, you're your mainstay is going to be at this point, you're going to give NEBS. Like generally if they're in respiratory distress, they're not going to be able to take any kind of inhaler. And typically you'll give them albuterol and ipratropium, right? So bronchodilators, um, it's not a wrong answer to give them uh, nebulized steroids or a long acting beta agonist, but generally in the emergency room setting, you're going to give them IV solumeterol or IV steroids. And so the nebulized steroid is not going to be, you know, a big component um, of the acute therapy kind of in the emergency department. Um, and then magnesium. So for status asthmaticus, there's some data on magnesium. So some people will give that. Other than that, you're trying to figure out, um, you know, you're trying to figure out triggers and exacerbating factors. So um, is this sort of straight up asthma or in, are they in that much respiratory distress because there's something else going on? So you kind of do the rest of your workup, you know, you might do a chest x-ray or, um, you know, uh, and again, remember in asthma, hypoxemia is a really late sign. So they, if they look like they're in respiratory distress and their SATs look okay, um, you know, that's not that reassuring. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes people get BiFAP for just work of breathing. And for some people that helps other people find it, you know, find that they're fighting against it. Um, And then sometimes giving them a little bit of benzos um, can help sort of calm them down and work with the, um, with the positive pressure. um, You know, if it's a non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, if they're, you know, if you're at the point where you've intubated them and you're having trouble ventilating, then, um, you know, then you can paralyze them to try and get compliance um, with the vent. And, and that's in extreme cases. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you're almost going down like an ARDS sort of pathway, like you're doing whatever you can to support them, which obviously is a little outside the scope of, of what we're trying to address here. But I think it's useful for, um, for you know, hospitalists, internists to have an idea as to, you know, how things are potentially going to progress. And for COPD, there's generally, from what I've read recently, five days for most patients is okay. Five days of steroids. What what do is a typical course for your asthma patients? You know, I've I've started doing the five days of prednisone forty for asthma too. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if someone knows that that doesn't work for them and they need a longer taper, I'll give them like a you know ten day to two week taper or something like that. But I generally won't do prednisone over 40 unless like I have a specific reason to. So like, it'll still, I'll still do five days of 40 as my starting point for asthma. Um, the other recent developments in terms of asthma exacerbation, um, there was a study looking at, 
uh, azithromycin for an acute asthma exacerbation. So kind of giving steroids and antibiotics the way you might with, with COPD. And that didn't show any improvement um, in quality of life or time to resolution or any of that. Um, and the biggest takeaway from that study was actually that they had to screen over 2,000 patients to recruit 200 because most patients were getting some kind of antibiotic. <laughs> uh, oh, no. Wow. It's not but powerful. on the flip side... Another study came out that if you have someone with difficult to control asthma and frequent exacerbations, the same way that you might do azithromycin for uh, for COPD and reduce their exacerbation frequency, apparently it works for asthma as well. So. Yeah, I, I did see that one. And that was, I believe, JAMA Internal Medicine. And it was uh, it was in August 2017. So we can link that one in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> and now we just wait for the arrhythmia events. Right, <laughs> yeah. right? Well, <laughs> but I will say some asthma, right? Like if some people are really allergic and atopic, a lot of, you know, kind of the phenotype of older, and um, we tend to think of it as more women, but older, um, you know, so middle-aged, uh, obese, and asthma, that can often be um, acid reflux GERD comorbidity. And so it might be that that subset tends to respond to the antibiotics. Um, and of course, with azithromycin, you know, we think that there's anti-inflammatory properties. So who knows what's really going on there. But I think we're around an hour now. We should start to wrap up. I'm going to throw out to you guys any questions, Stuart, anything from social media that, that you wanted to pose? I think most of the questions that we had on Facebook were, were answered. A lot of them are, they're, they're kind of like, what's the meaning of life about asthma? And I don't think we can ask a lot of those questions. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to try to avoid some of those questions. They're very all encompassing. Like, tell me how to read PFTs. Okay, well, we, this is probably we not did the go through that, that. So, right, 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 right. But we didn't do a crash course on how to read a PFT, which is not, this is not the form for that. Right. Um, so I, I think for the most part, we're good. Okay. At this point, then, I'm going to ask you, Denitza, for your take-home points If for our primary care audience. What, what do you want them to most remember about how to take care of patients with asthma? Actually, Matt, real quick, and I'm sorry to do this, but can I ask one more question? You're not sure. sorry at all. I'm actually, I'm not all that sorry, but I just my, my question would be is, is when to refer. So when should I, as a primary care doctor, consider having one of my asthma patients seen by a pulmonologist? Every single one of them, or, or is there a certain threshold I should have? No, so most asthma patients, like most COPD and heart failure and diabetes patients, are taken care of in primary care um, and very well. Um, I would say anyone that you have on maximal inhaler therapy, and that would include long-acting beta agonist um, and inhaled steroid, and you can even add a long-acting antimuscarinic, so something like teotropium on top of that for asthma. If you're on three classes of inhalers, and you are still having symptoms and exacerbations, um, then that would be a reasonable person to take a look at. Definitely anyone that's on chronic steroids should be looked at by a pulmonologist. And definitely anyone that's having frequent exacerbations, despite, you know, their... Um, you can think of kind of the risk domain of asthma where you're fine and you're never needing your PRN albuterol except twice a year when you end up, you know, intubated, that person <laughs> should be a pulmonologist. Um, and those are generally the people I would think through in terms of, um, you know, kind of the more advanced therapy. So the IL-5 or IgE or even bronchial thermoplasty, like have another set of eyes, look at, you know, what else could we be doing for their asthma? You're really sending them for an evaluation and a, 
kind of patient education and a history even more, I think, than just the prescription for that drug or uh, the bronchial thermoplasty procedure. Great. Um, I actually did have one question myself. So is there any point, if at all, that we should be worried about using high dosage beta blockers for asthmatic patients? Or is this not even a concern? I don't worry about it. Um, And I think for most patients, it's not an issue. So I start from the standpoint of uh, beta blockers and people with coronary artery disease have Mm. excellent data for um, mortality. Give them, you know, if it's the occasional patient um, that has um, trouble and they should be able, you know, maybe don't start at a super high dose to begin with. But um, I, I go from the, even your COPD patients, um, they, most of them tolerate beta blockers without a problem. Okay. And I do actually, I I feel like I've been inspired. I have one last question for you (laughs) before we wrap things up here. So you've alluded to the use of anticholinergic medications. I think one time when you were discussing exacerbations and I've been taught the whole spectrum have no use in asthma, use them in asthma. Can you kind of round that out, flesh that out a little for me? When should these patients be on anticholinergic therapies? So that would definitely be second or third line therapy. There's a New England Journal uh, paper, maybe it's from 2015 or 2016, looking at asthma patients that were already on an inhaled steroid, um, and they plus or minus the long-acting beta agonists. So they didn't all have ICS lava, and they added teotropium, so randomized controlled teotropium versus placebo. The ones that got teotropium had lower exacerbation frequency um, than, or longer time to exacerbation than the ones that didn't. So in somebody that has, um, you know, asthma and I already have their lava ICS combo and I'll generally do the high dose ICS before I reach for the llama because you're still kind of sticking with one inhaler that way. Um, but once I'm maxed out on that, I'll add the teotropium. Got it. Oh, it's very, very helpful. Thank you. Perfect. Now I think we're ready for your take home points. So for our primary care, uh, if you're in primary care treating asthma, what do you want them to remember about, about these patients? So asthma is very common and it is a clinical diagnosis, uh, meaning that your clinical assessment and findings are really the gold standard. And so history is essential. Um, and, Thinking about triggers and understanding the triggers because trigger avoidance should really be the mainstay of asthma therapy is one of the key things to focus on, I think, early on. Um, The inhaler's first-line therapy for asthma is an inhaled steroid, and then you work your way up to um, the rest of them and really all the rest of them, uh, and including the leukotriene receptor antagonists. And finally, if you have someone with difficult to control or severe asthma, anyone where you're refilling prednisone tapers, you know, month after month, um, or anyone um, who ends up intubated in an ICU because of their asthma, I think those are the people that deserve a second look by a pulmonologist. All right. Well, thank you so much. I, I uh, really enjoyed talking with you. I, I hope you had a good time. I think this is going to be really helpful for, for the audience. Yeah. Thank you. Audience says yes. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. This is tremendous. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you have a great night. Yeah. Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. All right, guys. So we can do the outro here. Um, so I'm going to tell a story real quick. Go for because it. Because I had a patient that I'd been seeing in clinic for his asthma for a million years to the point where I'd actually sent him to pulmonology. He ended up on umolizumab. He was constantly in exacerbation. 
And I finally went back to my med student mindset and I was like, I don't know. I, I give up, man. Hey, do, new pets or something? And he's like, well, no, just peaches. Uh, and I said, what now? He's like, oh, yeah, peaches. Like, this has all gotten bad since I got peaches. And peaches was his cat. As soon as I got rid of the patient's cat, <laughs> as soon as I told him to get rid of peaches, he came off the Omolism map. His asthma was beautifully controlled. Like, he had been escalated to the point where he's getting a $40,000 a year biologic. And if I just <laughs> would have asked about cat. his pet. Yeah. 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 His, his, his insurance company is high-fiving you uh, for that one. For yeah. the good catch. I, I legit, his name was Peaches, because I'll never forget that. As soon as he said, no, just Peaches, I almost fell to my chair. <laughs> this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can Yummy. Find- <laughs> You can find show notes along with Lake Steady articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And please sign up to receive our weekly mailing list where you'll get our expertly done show notes, this time by Dr. Cyrus Askins. Thank you, Cyrus. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your input. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. Or send you in a hurry, Paul. Or no, Matt. Am I? Am I not reading it properly, Stuart? No, no, you're you're going really fast. It's okay though. Keep going. I like it. <laughs> We're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your input. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, which helps. Thank you. Or send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham, here with Dr. Cyrus Askin. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We've devolved into a morning zoo show. This is absurd. (laughs) I remain Dr. Paul Williams, and good night. Oh, hi, Paul. It's good to see you. So you I just do that Google just to get you underneath just Paul's go- skin. You just Google search no, no, those no. in there. Nope. I made that one up. You made that one up? When she said llama, I was like, I've got to use that in a joke. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that's why Stuart was the entire episode <laughs> for the entire episode, you were working furiously on that llama joke, weren't you? <laughs> yes. Not a single question because the gears are turning. I gotta make that solid llama joke at the end. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I can't breathe. <laughs>